Welcome to FIA Speaks, a podcast at the centre of the futures, options and listed derivatives markets and the interesting people who work in them, run exchanges and regulate this industry. FIA's mission is to support open, transparent and competitive markets, protect and enhance the integrity of the financial system and promote high standards of professional conduct. Please note we have a lengthy disclaimer that I encourage you to listen to or read at FIA.org. But in short, this podcast is meant to be informative about this industry and should not be relied on for investment advice. And now here's your host, FIA President and CEO, Walt Lucan. Well, welcome to FIA Speaks, a global markets podcast. In this episode, we are honored and thrilled to have one of the most distinguished individuals in the futures industry, Leo Malamed. It is an honor to bring his story to our audience here today. This podcast, of course, is always sponsored by SmartStream. Trust your data, accelerate your future potential. More at smartstream-stp.com. As everybody who listens to this podcast knows, Leo Malamed is a giant in this industry, having served as chairman of the CME during a time when the Merck moved from an agricultural-based futures exchange to a global powerhouse it is today. Leo's story is one for the ages. He escaped Jewish persecution in Nazi-occupied Poland during World War II on a journey that led him across Russia, through Japan, and ultimately to the United States where he settled in Chicago. He began his work in the futures industry as a runner on the floor and rose to the heights of the financial industry, including becoming CME's chairman and an advisor to US presidents and foreign leaders. Leo is the author of several books and he's published his second autobiography called Man of the Futures, the story of Leo Malamed and the birth of modern finance. I could go on for the entire time talking about Leo's accomplishments, but I'm sure the audience wants to hear from the man himself. So welcome, Leo, to FIA Speaks. Well, let me say publicly that I am very honored to have this opportunity, and I, my gratitude to you and the FIA for having put this together, because um, it really gives me an opportunity to explain uh, my memoirs and to answer questions, and uh, I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Well, it's our pleasure, and you've been a role model for me for many years, so I'm just thrilled to be here and to to do this podcast with you. And I've truly enjoyed reading A Man of the Futures. Um, and to start with, I was just struck by the role of education and teachers in your life. You know, both, as the book talks about, both your parents were teachers and emphasized your education, no matter where you were, um, you know, when you were, were escaping Nazi-occupied Poland, um, they made sure that you were always having an education. Um, and you've surrounded yourself by professors and Nobel economists and critical thinkers your whole life. So tell me a little bit about, you know, about this emphasis on education and academia and how that has impacted your, your life and your success over the years. You've hit the critical note, of course, because my parents are really responsible, I think, for the attitude I had about education. And as you indicated, they put me in school, no matter if we were going to be during our escape, whether we were there for a month, a week or a year. It didn't matter to them. I would 
um, go to school. And I was, of course, a seven-year-old. So I started with language of Polish and Yiddish, but then it then it turned into Lithuanian that I had to learn a very tough language, then Russian, and then even Japanese when we were in Japan. So clearly, um, uh, education was uppermost in their minds because they knew that I was going to be missing. We didn't know how many years that would be. But there is an there is an extension of that that I would like to explain. When I first took over the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, 1967, and became chairman in 69, I recognized by then, the value of futures in the development of uh, capital markets. And I also realized that hardly anybody understood that, even though here was the Chicago Mercantile Exchange trading in egg futures and later pork bellies. But the membership didn't fully understand the beauty of futures market, what it does, and how it serves the best interests of a nation. So the only way I, I could do that, besides personally appearing and talking like this, was to bring it to an educational format. And I almost immediately uh, asked colleges and universities to put in futures market courses because I realized in that way, um, the world, well, the students anyway, who would be the world eventually would learn the beauty and the effect and, and the, the importance of futures markets. So from the very beginning of my takeover of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, I was pushing for education of futures. Do you think that intellectual curiosity that you still have today has helped you to be the innovator that you have been over the years? I mean, always trying to learn something new and to, to press the boundaries, because that, that seems to be a constant theme throughout this book. It's true. Uh, it started, of course, with currency futures, because at the time, Bretton Woods was under attack and was a fixed exchange rate system and the world was living with, and it wasn't working anymore. And I realized that if futures can serve agriculture as it has for hundreds of years, why isn't it in finance? Because finance could use the same values and the same protections and hedging mechanism and insurance the futures provide. And I never could satisfy myself as to why that hasn't happened. So the obvious was to launch some financial markets and see how it works. And Bretton Woods was, as I said, um, coming undone. And so I thought that the futures market could, in fact, take the place of a system because it would be a free market flow and it would allow the change of value every day, in fact, every hour, and that this, this could be a very important innovation, which, of course, as history has taken note, was a very important innovation. But it led me to the idea of innovating other things so that I stayed in the realm of finance generally, but finance was everywhere. And it, it 
turned into interest rates and stock index futures and all kinds of other elements in the financial world. So that innovation was the byword that I lived with uh, from the very beginning. Well, let's talk a little bit about the early part of your life and its impact on your ultimate career. Uh, the book goes into great detail about your escape from Bialystok, Poland. Um, it's just an amazing story. And you and your parents were able to flee the Nazis and Stalin through Siberia on your way to America via Japan uh, using visas issued by a Japanese diplomat, Sugihara. And many of your friends and family did not make it out of Nazi-controlled Europe. Uh, my father served during World War II. This was a huge impact on his life and his view of the world. But tell a little bit about how that amazing story and that traumatic event sort of shaped your view of America and your career ultimately. Well, it was an unusual kind of escape. Um, most of the Jews of Europe did not run. You know, war comes and goes. You don't run away just because it's uh, wartime. You try to live through it. And of course, in their case, they didn't live through it. And six million of them were killed, murdered by the Nazis. But my father was a brilliant man. I don't know to what extent he saw what was coming, because when, as an adult, I asked him what made you run, his only answer was it was an instinctive decision, one that he knew was right to do. And he's one of the very, very few that ran. Um, and as you indicated, we ran. It took two years. Uh, we, we crossed all of Siberia to get to Vladivostok on the Japanese uh, Ocean, and then later Japan. And of course, uh, during those two years, I saw my parents' determination. It was an incredible, you know, I was a child, but yet I could feel it because my father would have to maneuver sometimes to go into hiding because he was a it was a very strong anti-communist, so that when the Russians took over, it, it was just as bad for him as when the Nazis took over. And he was determined to save his wife and child, doing everything he could. I mean, it was just an incredible lesson in life to believe in something, that he could do this and uh, carry it forward to a point where we would end up in the land of the free. And I, of course, became the ultimate uh, American patriot as a result of that. And I saw what happened to the rest of the world. And it's a lesson that uh, can't be duplicated. And it's very, very rare. You needed a lot of luck, too. And he, um, he just managed to do it. And, you know, he was clearly one of the smartest men I, I've ever met. Well, when I think of you, I always think of you as a globalist. Um, you know, your work in China, your work in Japan, your work in South America. Tell us a little bit how this may have shaped your worldview, because I, there's a great story in the book about this Japanese diplomat that helped 
you know, 6,000 Jews escape uh, Europe through Japan. So tell, give a little details to our viewers about how that came to be and how that shaped your worldview. Well, it really was an incredibly uh, lucky event, but but luck, I mean, you make a lot of luck. And here we were caught in Vilna, Vilna in Poland, and um, nowhere to go. It was, uh, it, the, the Nazis were certainly coming, and we knew the fate that that would mean. And so the community, uh, there were about 10,000 Jews then who had escaped to Vilna, and we approached Sugihara, the general counsel from Japan, for a visa to Japan. If we could get that from him, it might be a doorway for escape. And he applied to the uh, foreign office of Japan for permission. Actually, he didn't need permission because he was the consul general. They have that power to give visas. And the foreign exchange of Japan said to him, no, 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 this is none of our business. Don't give out those visas. And he, he asked three times, and each time they gave him the answer no. And then ultimately, as his son, who I later met in life, Hiroki was his name, told me that he approached his family and he explained to them that if he followed the edicts, of the government, he would be violating the ethics of his God. He had by then become a Christian. And he said he can't do that. Do And he asked for permission, the family, to understand that he's going to violate what the, what the foreign office had told him. And Hiroki, the son, was then five years old. I was just over seven. We met some 30 years later, and he told me all this that went on in the consulate at that time. And of course, he began to give out visas. He ended up giving out over 2,000 visas, which meant actually 6,000 people because a visa represented the whole family. If you ever saw Casablanca, everybody has seen Casablanca, you know what a what a transit visa is, and it's a life-saving mechanism to, um, to get out from where you are to somewhere safe. And I lived through that and learned the ethical, unbelievable belief of this man, this Japanese gentleman, who said to his, to his office in Tokyo that, you know, these aren't criminals. Their only crime is because they were born Jewish. and of course, the foreign office did not agree and so forth, but he did what he thought was right, and over 6,000 of us were saved. Well, the book spends a lot of time about um, you know, free markets and really the perseverance of individual choice. And you, know, you, you talk a lot about Milton Friedman and the Chicago School of Economics and the important impact that that had on your worldview and of markets. You know, many people today, many young people today, don't see capitalism and free markets as a positive for our country. I'm just curious, and some of that is justified given some of the Wall Street fiascos we've had over the last couple of decades. 
But do you still hold that same level of passion for the power of markets to solve problems in our society? Absolutely. I learned it in a um, moment of time I was in law school. And my parents, as, as a lot of people then, were socialists. And um, I'm sitting in constitutional law, and I suddenly had an epiphany. I realized that my parents, who believed that you work for the betterment of the community, and thereby you will gain um, also, whereas capitalism worked the other way. You worked for your benefit, and the society gains as a, as a consequence. And I quickly recognized which was working and which wasn't. It was clear that the standard of living in the United States was far above what everything else in the world that had tried the socialism or even communism as a way of uh, life. So uh, I very quickly understood the difference, even though uh, it was really the antithesis of what my parents believed in. But I knew I could see the evidence all around us. And I also recognized that there was this uh, professor down at the University of Chicago that was speaking the same language I was just understanding and learning. And so I became enamored, of course, with the great man, Milton Friedman, uh, who eventually um, thought my idea of launching currency futures was a damn good idea, as he said, do it. And of course, I at that time said, well, no one's going to believe me that you said that. And he laughed and he said, well, just tell him I did. And I said, no, 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 Professor Friedman, you have to put it in writing. He laughed at me and he said, well, do you want a feasibility study on why currency futures would work in futures? And I said, yeah, exactly that. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, he then said, well, I'm a capitalist. I said, I fully understand that. How much? <laughs> and he said, well, how about $5,000? And I said, it sounds great. And so we agreed, and he wrote the feasibility study. And of course, that gave me the wind at my back, and I, I used it uh, all over the world. And as you mentioned, uh, I then became the evangelist of future markets, truly. Um, I was... Uh, you know, uh, I traveled the world over the first in, in the UK and then later France and Germany and Japan and uh, Singapore, of course, and Brazil um, and finally in China. But it was all an evangelist kind of approach because I knew I was right. Futures market developed the economy of the nation that has it. It provides an insurance net that you can't do without. And so um, I truly became um, a little crazed about the subject. <laughs> I understood that I was creating competition, but I honestly believe that competition, that's a damn good thing. It keeps you on your toes and it teaches you how to do better and so forth. And that became my role in life uh, during many, many years. And uh, I, it worked. <laughs>
I mean, it worked. Everywhere they tried it, it worked. You know, the other part of the flip side of that was, um, you know, I think you not only were evangelists for the for the markets, but also for the sound regulatory structure that supports the markets and make sure the integrity of the markets are upheld. And there's a lot of a lot of the book devoted to your work with, you know, developing the helping the CFTC get started, the NFA get started, but also you're cleaning up the CME to make sure that its reputation was a sound one of self-regulation. And I'm just curious, um, you look now at what we're facing today. There are, there are re- regulators everywhere around the world, what's going on in Washington, what's going on in Brussels. But do you think we ha- still have the right balance between self-regulation uh, of the markets and the, the, how the federal government is, is regulating these markets? Or do we have too much regulation? Um, I'm just curious your thoughts. Well, I think it waxes and wanes. It depends a lot on who is the regulator and what his background was and how his beliefs were. But if you're asking me, do we need the regulation? Absolutely, yes. Um, At the time, Gerald Ford was uh, the president, uh, as you may know. and, And I was pushing for the creation of the CFTC, because I really thought that without a regulator, the ideas I had uh, would seem like strange and maybe not even acceptable. And he laughed when I met with him and he said, you're a free market guy, Mr. Muhammad. Why would you want another regulator? He was a very free market um, guy himself. And I explained, I said, well, look, The idea I am pushing is a very big one. If it works, Congress isn't going to let us be without a regulator anyway. Oh, he said, so you want to be the one to create the regulator. Is that right? Well, I admitted that to some degree that was certainly true. But he understood the value that I was representing, that you you can't be without regulation. You know, even Milton Friedman said that to me, you know, you, you've got to have the rules right. And I started with, as you indicated, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange at the time was not exactly a, a great institution. It was a backwater little exchange dealing in eggs and butter. And uh, believe me, when I say they had hardly any rules, it was the Wild West. And I recognize that if I was taking over this this little, by the way, institution, I have to do something. And and of course, I I I've got to tell you, I had a lot of help. Guys like were my attorney, like Jerry Salzman, in, indispensable in doing what I was hoping to do. And we wrote the rules of a of a legitimate um, to be a big exchange. It, it was the basis on which all our markets grew. And I had other help. I mean, none of what I did, Walt, was something that I, I could do alone. I had many, many helpers along the way, devoted people. You're one of them. I mean, I, I met you because Senator Lugar, who you worked for, understood the value of future markets. He was just a great man. And a great senator, and uh, so you you learned at ISME, I think, 
I exactly what I was doing and why it was important and why it worked. And I think all those members that were helpful on, along the way, of course, I had many enemies too. There were people who didn't like the rules and didn't want to abide by them and so forth. And we, we had to prove to them that this is the way it was going to be. Well, Senator Luger was an economist by training. He studied ec economics at Oxford and loved Milton Friedman, um, your hero. So he he was a natural to, to really appreciate the futures markets just like you and, and I do. So I did while we were talking about the starting of the CFTC. And I was saddened to learn of the news this week of Phil McBride Johnson's passing. I wanted to get your reflections on Phil's career and in his in his uh, contributions to our industry, well, he he was a pillar on which we built the industry. Because under his time as chairman of the CFTC, there were several things that I wanted done to advance the role of futures, and he was the chairman. I actually voted and pushed for him to become chairman. I loved the guy because he was so smart. And when I explained to him that what I'd like to do is do away with physical delivery, because if you had to have physical delivery of an object for futures, that was very limiting, very, very limiting. Um, in fact, the reason I, I could do currency futures is because you could actually deliver the currency, and later treasury bills could be delivered. But I had other ideas, um, like index futures. How do you deliver 30,000 contracts? You can. And Phil Johnson understood exactly that. And it was under his agents that physical delivery was changed to cash settlement. So that that's the thing that mattered, is the value in cash of the time you put the contract on to the time you take it off, he got it. And it was under his aegis that cash settlement was approved by the CFTC. And that, in fact, proved my reason for having a CFTC. Who else could do that? And Jerry Salzman said it was the only way is if your regulator agrees to to make that uh, kosher, so to speak. And the consequence of that is very important to understand because with cash settlement, the Merck could then launch index futures, starting with the S&P futures, which of course made the Merck. It was the contract that brought the financial world to our doorstep. And it could only work when at settlement, you didn't have to deliver anything. You figured it out in cash, what you owe or what you don't. And it was under Phil Johnson that I was able to do that. Without him, I don't know what would have happened. So it was a great loss. His passing just last month, I had no idea he was ill. But I hold him in such enormous high regard and I can't I can't say any less than that. Yeah. No, my, myself included. He was he was a giant as well. So um I did want to turn to a lot of the innovative things that you've done over your career. I mean 
the list is long, so it'll take the rest of the podcast to talk about everything, but starting with the IMM currency market that you started in the early 70s, uh, Globex, obviously, the first electronic exchange that you started and got through the membership, amazingly. Um, the Symex, you know, a cross-border connect uh, that you put into place uh, to try to, to combat life's uh, listings, um, you know, and to combat some of the time zone issues with with CME, and then the listing of the euro dollars, just to name a, a few. Um, and even today, you continue to do innovative things and create and, and write and all those things. I'm just curious, as you're looking at the the world ahead, what what are you looking at as the next innovation for our markets? You've been through a lot, but do you see where we're heading and what the vision is for the next 10 years? Well, that's a hard question and, of course, uh, very difficult to answer because uh, the world does change. I just want to make sure that I've answered your question about uh, uh, capitalism, so to speak, because it's important to understand that Capitalism isn't just an exchange of good or ser- goods or services. Capitalism is a way of life. It includes ethics. It includes the right to think, to freely think, and the right to fail. Uh, because in many countries, if you fail, uh, that's the end of you. In this country, uh, Rocky Balboa in Rocky said, you get another chance. You get another chance. And that's part of capitalism. It's the finest system of creating wealth and community that has ever been invented. And I managed to teach that lesson to many countries. I tried China and and in the last uh, um, of the countries that I uh, was working on, you too. Uh, had a role in that, Walt, and you're doing a great job. You asked, what is the future? In other words, um, where can we go? And I'll tell you two areas that I hold in high regard. One is in the biomedical area. You can imagine what futures does when it creates an insurance policy is reduce price and If anything needs reduction in price, it's the pharmaceutical world, and it's through biomedical inventions, as you will, uh, speak of the COVID, for instance, and how much that costs. And I think that's an area that the futures markets can do something about and ought to look in that direction, which speaks to another kind of connection which is education, which is also unspeakably uh, high-priced. And kids can't afford, uh, like you and I did when we were first uh, in college and so forth, it's gotten so expensive. And I think the futures markets ought to look at that. If there's perhaps a way to reduce that uh, unbelievable cost of going through college. So here are two areas. in my view, they're even connected because there's a similarity of need. So that's kind of the answer you, you asked for. And who knows what the next smart guy is going to think of. And uh, um, I leave it to them. But 
But in all regard, it'll have to be through what we believe is capitalism. And sure, there are things that can be fixed and made better and so forth and so on. But no one's going to find a better system. Nobody. Well, one of the things that's getting a lot of attention nowadays is cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. And I understand from an interview I, I read recently of yours that uh, you don't trade Bitcoin. Uh, but I'm just curious, as the father of financial futures, what is your take on this whole digital asset craze that we're going through? That is a very difficult but very important question. I'm going to try and, and answer at least my my point of view, which is that perhaps it is an extension of technology that drove us to this point of Bitcoin, because it is a technological solution. However, I have always felt that the value of futures markets was important, that it can't be just a gamble. There has to be some reason for the existence of a futures market, okay? So if it's currency that changes value, if it's interest rates that changes value, or the stock market that changes value, all of that has a purpose, has a, has a, a life of its own, and future markets add the ability of ensuring that risk that's involved in all of it. I have trouble understanding what cryptocurrency does for us. Um, now, perhaps I, I will find the answer in time. So I'm not negating anything. As Larry Summers said to me once, he said, you, Leo, can't be against any new instrument of finance. He meant that in a real nice way. And I'm not against it because I don't know how it will develop and perhaps there will be use. But my purpose in, in launching futures was always to serve an interest that is needed for the economy of that nation. And it has worked everywhere it's been tried. And I hope that I'll still be successful in China as well. I have actually, you and I know that we, we, we did launch uh, markets in China. And I know it creates competition between us, but I'm a wholly uh, endowed person as it relates to competition. So that's my best answer. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's a great answer. And in fact, it, it's very similar to, I did an interview with Kok Song in Singapore, and he, he said it's really important to remember that you know our industry is not an industry. We service the, the general economy, and there has to be an underlying economic purpose to the things that we trade here. It can't just be trading. It has to be supporting an industry. It's very similar to what you said, and I know you're good friends with Kok Song, so um, it's very very similar answer. Yes, it was exa it's exactly the right answer. Kok Song is, of course, uh, a Singaporean who helped uh, create the Cymex with me. He's a great man and a genius in his way there. Um, and, and he understood that if there's no underlying purpose of value, what is it for? Just to gamble? Well, sure, gambling is okay and it's legal as far as I'm concerned and so forth. 
but it isn't what is a necessary element, I think, to create a futures market. And uh, I'm still stuck with that belief. Well, let's you, you mentioned China, and I'd like to talk a little bit more about China. You've spent significant time in China investing um, CME's capital and, and personnel and, and, and going there and, and meeting people and developing relationships. Um, and you saw, and I know you served on the uh, CSRC, International Advisory Council, for many years. And also, they just came out with their new futures law. After many years of your promoting this, they finally have published something. So tell us your view of China and what the significance of this publication of the new futures law may be for its, its derivatives markets. Well, first of all, I, I was a really strong friend of China, given its history that the people in dynasties back invented so many of the things that Western civilization adopted, whether it's writing or um, yeah, ice cream, for instance, and stuff like that. So I believed in the Chinese people. And after Kissinger and Nixon opened China, I invited the, the president, then Li Shenyan, to visit. And the rumor was that Li Shenyan came to see Leo Muhammad in Chicago before he saw Ronald Reagan in Washington, D.C. Not true, but a nice rumor anyway. And I tried very, very hard, as you say, to help uh, China understand that it needed futures markets. And they listened. They did listen. And we did start up some future markets. And they worked very, very well and continue to work. Unfortunately, of course, um, their regime is communism, and it's an entirely different way of uh, economic system than we uh, want. But that doesn't mean it doesn't work, because it seems to work for them very, very well. They didn't become the second largest economy in the world by wishing it. They worked at it, and they created what is a wonderful result. But I believe that that result needs the futures markets so that I haven't given up uh, on China, and I'm still a friend of the people of China, and uh, will continue to be. It is just a, a continuum of the things that I believed in, starting with, as I said, the UK and all of Europe, and then Singapore and Japan and Brazil. And why not China when China is the second largest economy in the world? You and I both agree on that, I'm sure, because you are on this same uh, advisory council that I am. And so it was a natural for me to follow Kissinger and do the thing that uh, I do best, I suppose. And uh, I will continue to do that. Well, I know we're getting short on time, Leo, um, but, you know, the book is fascinating, as I've mentioned several times, and I encourage everybody to, to read it. But I did want to, in, in thinking on your legacy, and there's so many achievements over your life. You know, I was struck by Thomas Jefferson, um, you know, in, in describing his legacy. You know, if you read his tombstone, there's only three life accomplishments on his tombstone the author of the Declaration of Independence, the author of the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom, 
and the father of the University of Virginia. What's, what's notable is that Jefferson does not mention being U.S. president or an ambassador to France or a variety of other things that he did over his career. But if you had to pick three things out of your life's rich work, what would you choose as your three things that people will remember for your legacy? Actually, it's not very hard for me to answer this question. Um, and thank you for even this small comparison to Thomas Jefferson, who I believe was one of the all-time greats in the world. But clearly breaking the mold of agriculture and introducing finance uh, changed the world of futures and created the industry we have today. Uh, over 80% of the markets today are in finance and more to come. And so clearly that's, that has to be my number one achievement, but it's very close to the number two. And you mentioned it, Globex. At the time when I introduced the idea of uh, electronic transaction system to oppose the open outcry system that had existed for centuries, really. It was a very difficult, it was the most difficult thing I did. Introduction of finance was easier, much easier than the introduction of electronic trading systems. But I knew that you can't ignore technology. It'll overwhelm you if you do. And it will keep on going no matter what anybody does, it can't stop. And when I recognized that, uh, actually, I recognized that early on when I wrote a science fiction book. And in it, I created a computer. This is in 1983. Created a computer that could do everything that eventually Google does. I realized that it was unstoppable. And certainly, the transaction system called Open Outcry was an antiquated system when you could do the same thing cheaper, faster, and with more accuracy than anything that would otherwise be compared to the Open Outcry. But it took a very long time, uh, over 10 years, to achieve this. Uh, Globex, many enemies. Because you've got to remember, I was taking away the jobs of a lot of brokers, a lot of brokers and a lot of money. But technology does something interesting. It creates more than it takes away. And today, as you know, the futures industry is huge because what it created was various different types of applications through technology and through the computer that broadened the base of futures market. And so new jobs were created, far many than it replaced, and the industry became so much bigger as a result. But it was very hard. And that would certainly be my second greatest achievement, I think. And as third, well, I think cash settlement in place of physical delivery opened up the curtain to so many new ideas that I have to give cash settlement third place in, in achieving that. And 
to a degree owe that to Phil Johnson, as I said, who helped me achieve that, and also Jerry Salzman, who uh, was the lawyer for me in, in effect doing these things. So not a hard question, I think, but easy enough to answer, not so easy to do. Well, I would add a fourth, which is just being a, a mentor and role model to many of us who have, have grown up under your leadership and, and uh, you know, just admired your career throughout time. And Leo, unfortunately, we've run out of time, but this has been a fascinating conversation. And I was honored to speak with you today. Thank you for being with us for FIA Speaks. Well, thank you for doing this. Thank the Futures Industry Association. Um, and um, I am honored to have had this opportunity. So uh, thank you very, very much. And the book is called uh, The Man of the Futures. And I, I hope that people read it and understand uh, the beauty of futures markets. And you can get that on Amazon as I did. So I encourage everybody to do so. Thanks to our audience for listening and to our sponsor, SmartStream. And as always, we welcome your feedback, issues, and ideas at FIA Speaks at FIA.org. Take care, everyone. FIA Speaks is brought to you by the staff of the FIA. Steve Adamski is our executive producer. Cameron Lane is our technical producer, with additional technical support from Craig Richardson. We welcome your feedback on these podcasts at fiaspeaks at fia.org. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide investment, tax, business, legal or professional advice to any individual or entity. Unless specifically stated otherwise, neither FIA nor its members endorse, approve, recommend or certify any information, opinion, product, process, service, individual or entity presented or mentioned in this podcast. FIA makes no representations, warranties or guarantees as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the podcast's content. Reliance on the podcast content is done at your own risk. FIA disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special of consequential damages arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on or inability to use this podcast or its contents. Any commercial use, resale or redistribution of this podcast without the FIA's express written consent is prohibited. Copyright 2019 FIA. All rights reserved. For more information, visit FIA.org.